This episode is sponsored by Code Health. Code connects healthcare providers to the largest community of medical coding professionals in the country with over 4,600 domestic certified coders. As a single stop for all coding needs, Code's on-demand model has solved for daily staffing challenges and coding inefficiencies by allowing providers to access the right coder at the right time while gaining insights to better manage their coding operations. To learn more about Code, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E Health.com, or email Code directly at partnerships at CodeHealth.com. There's a man in Canada who is so passionate about severe weather that he's made it his life's work. His YouTube channel has more than 200,000 subscribers, and in the past eight years, his energetic videos have gotten almost 36 million views. He has a book and a line of merchandise, including an action figure and a talking bobblehead. But Frankie McDonald isn't your typical weather forecaster. Frankie, who has autism, produces and posts his own videos from his hometown of Sydney, Nova Scotia. He's an internet sensation whose popularity is only growing. So when I started to look into disaster preparedness for hospitals and health systems, I knew I wanted to talk to the man who's dedicated his life to helping others be prepared. I study the weather models. I study the weather patterns, jet streams, temperatures, wind, humidity, rainfall, snowfall, sleet, or freezing rain, or hail, or taping, and things like that. I study the weather not only North America. I study weather for South America, Europe, Asia, Africa, like in Australia and New Zealand. I study the. I build typhoons to hit Japan. I help people in Japan, in Taiwan, and Hong Kong, and those places and. India and those places in Vietnam and Philippines and those places that I help people to get them prepared for typhoons like in the Western Pacific Ocean, like Guam and those places when a typhoon hits for Japan, I warn Japan to get them prepared for typhoons. Frankie's style is a little unorthodox, but when it comes to advice, he's pretty spot on. I tell them to be prepared and make sure if you're with your boots, winter jackets, hats and gloves, surface, ski pants, is ready, have your shovel, snow scoops, snow blowers, snow plows, salt trucks ready to slow. For winter storms, make sure to order pizzas and order giant for bike cases, especially bike cases. So make sure you have your cell phones and smartphones and tablets, laptops, charge, and have your extra batteries ready just in case you lose power. Hello, and welcome to Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Erica Grotto. In today's episode, I talk with Melissa Harvey, Director of the National Healthcare Preparedness Program, and Charles Renault, a healthcare training manager at the Center for Domestic Preparedness, about what hospital leaders can do to ensure their organizations are ready. That story is coming up after we check in with Rich and Chad for Beyond the News. This is Rich Daly, Senior Writer and Editor for HFMA. And this is Chad Mulvaney, a policy director with HFMA. Thanks for joining us today on Beyond the News segment of the podcast, where we take a quick peek at the significance of recent healthcare finance news developments. First up for us, North Carolina. It's in the midst of implementing a plan to pay providers 182% of Medicare on average for inpatient and outpatient services for state employees. They reportedly are having trouble getting hospitals to accept these rates. What are some of the key elements of the program finance leaders should know about, Chad? So, Rich, this is unlike some other contracts. I'm specifically thinking about the initiative rolled out in Montana. This is a true Medicare reference pricing contract where it averages out between in and outpatient services to about 182% of Medicare. What's significant about this is that the state is the largest purchaser of health care for its employees, spends about 3.2 
billion dollars a year. Um, and so far, only three hospitals as of, I guess, July 2nd have signed on and the deadline passed on July 1st. So now there's some question as to whether it'll be extended or what happens next. Any kind of feedback you're getting so far from uh, providers in the state? Yeah, you know, I think providers in the state are frustrated. Um, actually, I'm hearing two things from providers in the state. Number one, they're frustrated. I think they wanted an opportunity to collaborate with the state health plan and co-develop a value-based model similar to a shared savings arrangement that would be voluntary for them to participate in. Instead, I think they feel like that this model has been imposed upon them and it's basically a rate cut. And there is no reward for organizations that are willing to come together and truly manage the sick population, sort of align the incentives to improve outcomes and reduce the total cost of care. So, you know, I think this has been a from their perspective, and I would agree with it, a complete missed opportunity, particularly when you think about the number of progressive health systems in North Carolina and the number of ACOs that are either health systems are leading or are participating in. I think the second very legitimate concern that they have is that if they were to agree to the reference price contract at the state level, you're going to see other major employers in the area in North Carolina come back to them and say, hey, you gave the state 102% of 82% of Medicare. I want the same deal. The other thing to think about is also if you start seeing hospitals that have operations outside of the state of North Carolina, you know, I might, if I was an employer in one of those states, start to look at, you know, one of the component hospitals and say in North Carolina, you gave the state employees 182% of Medicare. I want the same deal. So I think there's some concern that this could lead to broader rate compression. Of course, North Carolina is a lovely place, but maybe you could tell us a little bit about why providers outside of that state should be paying attention to this to this showdown. So the idea started, as I mentioned, in Montana. It wasn't exactly a reference price model, but more or less the state used it as an opportunity with their urban hospitals to, over a period of years, reduce payment rates to something closer to Medicare. So they were trying to reduce the variation. It's a concept that appears to have caught on, certainly in addition to North Carolina, which is sort of the furthest along and being second to implement this. My understanding is that Indiana, Nevada, and Colorado are all considering similar pricing models, or at least are exploring it. And I know it's something that's come up with the Senate Health Education and Labor, or Labor and Pensions Committee as one of their ideas that they kicked around potentially for cost containment. And certainly the the person who put it together in Montana is out and about having conversations with other states. So it could spread to broader areas. You know, I think if I'm a hospital that's concerned about this, there are two things that I do. I'm obviously trying to get more aligned as best as possible with my health plans and implement value-based models so that there's an alternative to sort of flat reference pricing, sort of a blunt approach. The other piece of this is, is I'm obviously, you know, all hospitals are working on their cost structure, making sure that they're efficient, but I think this is just a, a call to redouble those steps. Well, I guess we will uh, definitely be following this bouncing ball, and um, thanks a lot for all those insights on this today, Chad. Hey, no problem, Rich. Always a pleasure to chat with you. And to keep up with the latest news developments in healthcare finance policy and practice, check out our daily news page at hfma.org forward slash news. 
If you're looking to take the next step in your career, turn to HFMA's online job bank. Search open positions, create a profile, and make your resume available to companies seeking qualified candidates. Start your search now at hfma.org slash job bank. October 10th, 2018. Bay Medical Sacred Heart in Panama City, Florida, shut its doors in the wake of Hurricane Michael, opening three months later after being forced to cut 50% of its staff. November 8, 2018. Adventist Health Feather River Hospital in Paradise, California, was partially destroyed by the Camp Fire, the largest and deadliest wildfire in the state's history. November 19, 2018. Mercy Hospital in Chicago became the site of a mass shooting that resulted in the deaths of four people, including the gunman. These are just a few instances in recent history where hospitals and communities had to contend with major events, both natural and man-made. Healthcare organizations play a key role when disaster strikes, but as I learned from today's guests, the hospital is only one piece of the puzzle. According to Melissa Harvey, director of the National Healthcare Preparedness Program at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office of the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, Success depends on community organizations and groups leaning on each other, even when they're competitors under normal circumstances. It's about the entire healthcare system. Hospitals are sort of on the receiving end of all of the influx if the outpatient care centers or the nursing homes or the skilled nursing facilities can't maintain operations. Oftentimes, they then evacuate to the hospitals. So we, with our grant program now, what we're asking for the uh, state health department awardees to do is to build what we call healthcare coalitions. And these are groups of uh, very diverse and often competitive healthcare organizations that have very different day-to-day priorities and objectives to really come together, work together, plan together, um, and respond together during an emergency that's going to impact their, their area. So again, we recognize that these healthcare systems often um, um, belong to different corporate entities, and they aren't very likely to share their uh, day-to-day or even hourly um, available beds with each other or their what, what kinds of supplies they might be short in or the gaps that they have in preparedness, because those aren't things that you would normally share with your competitors. But it's only through sharing that information before an emergency and coming up with ways to mitigate those gaps that together the entire region is going to um, be able to be ready and withstand the impacts of any emergency that might occur. Harvey noted, however, that this program is the only source of federal funding for this type of effort. So it's up to hospitals and other entities to take it upon themselves to prepare for major events. But even without financial assistance, it's important to build a process that includes all the key players in the community. Some of the biggest gaps that we see, um, largely around, again, sometimes what we call preparing in a silo or making sure that uh, the individual facility is prepared. And in some cases, making sure the facilities get caught up and only making sure that the emergency department is prepared. And they don't think about preparedness as going beyond the emergency department and impacting um, the entire upstairs, the operating rooms, the entire facility. And that includes what we call administrative preparedness, Um, things that would be of interest to your members, like making sure that the administrative functions are ready to go in an emergency because it's not just about continuing patient care, but in order to do that, you have to be able to pay your staff. You have to be able to um, make sure that even if your 
uh, chief financial officer or any of their uh, designees are not able to sign off on uh, high price purchase orders, that there's someone in place, a business continuity um, program in place to be able to maintain operations both at the clinical level as well as the administrative level. Some of the other gaps that we often see are just the sheer nature of the competitiveness of healthcare and the fact that it runs on a very just-in-time supply chain. Because we are, again, a program about medical surge and many hospitals and healthcare facilities have right-sized their supply chain to what they need for what they typically consider to be their day-to-day business, that's a huge challenge when you have an event um, such as the, the terrible mass shooting on October 1st of last year in Las Vegas where then hundreds of um, patients rush the healthcare system with um, uh, tremendous injuries that require a lot of different types of supplies that we don't order a lot more of or different types of blood products that we don't often have available. So making sure that, again, there is a good coordination with the healthcare system around you, even if they aren't part of the same corporate entities, to know which patients are coming in where. Are they being sent to the right healthcare facilities based on their injuries? How do we redistribute them uh, so that the true uh, trauma patients are really being seen by the level one and level two trauma centers, and then the level threes and fours can handle patients that are appropriate for their capabilities, and making sure that, again, the healthcare system has a way to know where the, um, where the deficiencies are, who's running out of what types of supplies, which emergency departments are going on diversion, um, and where they're then asking for help, the types of contractors they're all relying on, because if they all rely on the same ones, I guarantee you that contractor can't provide services to every single hospital in the entire community at the same time. So it's important to have that visibility ahead of time, which is where the planning and the readiness comes in. And then during the response, making sure that um, there's at least decision makers in every single healthcare entity in the region that are communicating with each other and sharing what's happening at their facility so that the entire response can be better coordinated, um, which will in turn benefit every single hospital. Uh, again, if, if the facilities themselves are not inundated uh, by patients or they have the right patients that they're, uh, that they're capable of managing, it's going to work out better for both the facility and the patient. For hospitals and health systems that have not adequately prepared and they're listening and saying, okay, we have a lot of work to do, where do you start? The best place to start is is really making sure there's a person in every single facility whose role this is. And I know it's very difficult to say this, and many might think that, you know, this is someone sitting, you know, inside the beltway who doesn't really get it. But I was a hospital emergency manager at one point as well as an ER nurse. And I can tell you that it's really important to make sure there is someone in the facility whose role it is to do this planning. And oftentimes, these individuals are dual or triple-hatted. They have many other responsibilities besides emergency management. And we understand that may happen, especially in some of the much smaller or critical access hospitals. But once you know whose role and responsibility it is to do the planning, the next place to go is to make sure the planning extends into all of the various committees inside of the hospitals, whether it's the surgery committees or the pharmacy committee or any of the other uh, committees that are there to make sure that they're aware of what the individual facilities plan is and they're also aware of what the plan of the entire region is because none of this preparedness can happen, uh, again, in a vacuum. And oftentimes we think about, when we think about preparedness, we think about preparedness for the events that we've seen. So whether that be a Hurricane Katrina or a Hurricane Harvey 
or um, any of the terrorist attacks that have happened or the mass shootings that have happened. And as tragic as those were, um, there are a number of us that uh, can sit here in Washington, D.C. and think of events that um, are, are even larger in scope, uh, things like um, terrorism that involves radiation and, and um, hazardous materials or chemicals. And those are truly going to require a response the likes of which we haven't really seen in the United States yet. So I understand this can be a bit um, seem a bit overwhelming, but the first place to start is really making sure that the facility has an emergency management program that's very well integrated into all of the administrative and the clinical aspects of the facility, and then engaging uh, the coalition in, in the region where um, that facility resides to make sure they're a part of those exercises, the trainings, and um, obviously the planning efforts that are going on regionally. And when we say the exercises and the trainings, those, again, are not just for clinical providers. Those are for uh, the administrators and the chief financial officers as well. When we have exercises here in ASPR, we often include our Office of Finance and Planning uh, simply because they need to be ready. They need to be ready to make sure that they can turn on their administrative functions, even if we have to shut down here in Washington, D.C., and operate out of another building elsewhere. And they need to make sure that we can continue to do our life-saving work without missing a beat. And that's kind of the same expectation for um, hospital CFOs and others that work in administration. It's clear that training is an essential part of preparedness, and one name that kept coming up in my research was the Center for Domestic Preparedness, or the CDP. At the CDP's Noble Training Facility in Anniston, Alabama, healthcare personnel can train in a hospital setting. I reached out to Charles Renault, a healthcare training manager at the CDP, to learn more. For the financial folks, we know that just through case studies that it comes down to whether you either invest now or you pay now or you pay a lot more later. And I think our students that come here, uh, they leave with that, that same attitude as well. Do you think that when people first come in, they have um, any idea what they're in for? Or are, are people kind of surprised at what they're going to have to deal with when, when disaster strikes? Yeah, that is a great question. They are totally surprised. Um, the typical week will be on day one, they come here, they are in a classroom setting. We give them all of the, the materials they'll need. Then we take them in break them into functional areas based on, you know, their, their profession. We do, uh, discussion exercises. Then we go into functional exercises and then we run two days of full scale exercises to where they're receiving hundreds of casualties over a two-day period. And we stress it to the breaking point for the students. Renault says there's an important purpose behind the high-stress training environment. The goal is to make the experience as real as possible to help students make quick decisions when a real disaster strikes. We have simulators, human patient simulators, that mimic the human anatomy uh, 100%. We can do just about anything with the, with the uh, simulators. We also have a pool of uh, role players, professional actors. So it's not that they're just pushing, you know, and making decisions through a computer. They're actually confronting people and, and mannequins as well as they're dealing with uh, the exercise. Uh, for instance, in the um, intensive care unit, 
we actually push the patient to make a decision, life or death decision on a patient that is elderly to give the only ventilator they have to a adolescent uh, that has just come in. The prognosis of the elderly is, is very good. Uh, the prognosis of the uh, child is not. Uh, and we push them to make that decision on who gets a ventilator. If anyone listening is interested in training at the CDP, you can do it at no cost. Visit cdp.dhs.gov for more information and a schedule of upcoming courses. Seeking a promotion? Motivation for your team? HFMA online education and certification programs may be the answer. Discuss your objectives with a professional development specialist today by emailing careerservices at hfma.org or learn more at hfma.org slash promote yourself. Every healthcare organization needs a disaster plan, not just to get through the event, but to ensure stability in the aftermath. And when an event occurs, it's important to hit the ground running. For today's Fast Five, we have the first five phone calls to make when disaster strikes. Community partners. The local public health office, emergency management, and other organizations may be able to offer help. Attorneys and accountants. They can help ensure a healthcare organization has its paperwork completed and ready when the time comes to file insurance claims. Vendors. It's important to check that the emergency numbers for a hospital's vendors are still accurate and that contracts are up to date. The bank. For health systems with a low cash level, securing an emergency line of credit could be helpful. Staff. By the time skies turn gray, staff should know and have rehearsed the disaster plan and be able to jump in as soon as necessary. The information for this Fast Five came from Solid Written Policy and Agility are Key to Preparing for Disaster, the cover story for the July issue of HFM. You can read it and other stories at hfma.org. Voices in Healthcare Finance is a production of the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Beyond the News is produced by Rich Daly and Chad Mulvaney. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. HFMA's president and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen and reach out to us with your thoughts at podcast at hfma.org. Have a great day, Erica. Bye.